I'm curious why he sent it in Latin. Anyway, let's click on it. It's all in Latin. Translate message. Kids football, but the set itself. Okay, I'm going to look up the actual album. Okay, we got Blake coming back for a full episode. Let's uh, see what his pick for me is. Dear Hoof, Apple O. I've never in my life heard of this. What did Pitchfork give it? That's the real barometer. <laughs> my Chemical Romance. Three cheers for Sweet Revenge. I mean, I'm aware of them. I don't know them well. Uh, but I know they're, it's, it's a whole thing. So we're going to we're gonna dig into it. 8.3. That's not bad. Got the Pitchfork rate of approval. Well, color me interested. I'm ready. Well, not like right now. I'm not going to listen to it right this second. But I am ready to soon be ready to listen to it in full. Let's do it. Welcome to Crossfade, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. I'm your host, Matt Helgeson. As always, on the ones and twos, Jason Daphnis, my co-host and producer, how are you? You are so full of pep this episode, Matt. I know. What is it? I just coming in hot, man. It just it's it's just good to be, you know, it's good to be back, good to be talking some music. We have a great guest this week, uh, a returning guest, uh, Blake Hester from Hello. Game Informer Magazine. How are you, Blake? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I've listened to, I think, almost every episode of this podcast. Hell so. yeah, and man. That's like 40 just, hours of your life. Not just the one I am on specifically. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that's like 39 <laughs> hours of your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wanted to have you back because it, it, was, it was fun to have you uh, on the first show. Though that show was a little bit atypical, we were talking to Ralph D'Amato, formerly of Neversoft, and he was very instrumental in creating the uh, very iconic soundtracks to the Tony Hawk Pro Skater series, and um, Blake's written extensively about Tony Hawk, so but, you know, the nature of that show is it was a little bit more of an interview format because, you know, it's you don't get a guy like Ralph on the show that much to have so much insight into that stuff. So it was cool, but we thought it'd be fun to have you back so you could maybe we could talk music a little more broadly with you and have you pick an album that was important to you. Um, so I know I actually went on Game Informer uh, and your last posted story that I could find on the website was actually complaining about uh the refused song in um, <laughs> Cyberpunk 2077, which I thought was very yeah. appropriate. Yeah, those songs suck. <laughs> they're so bad. <laughs> you know, they're one of those bands where, like, I mean, I totally had the CD for you know, Punk of Shape to or the Shape of Punk to come, uh, and then I just kind of lost track of them. I don't know. I, I just so I almost chose the Shape of Punk to come for this episode. Like, I was kind of waffling between that and the one I chose. Um, I I don't know. I. Yeah, those songs on Cyberpunk are refused at their oldest and most toothless, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I mean, that, that album obviously is super important. And you, mm-hmm. um, another thing we want to talk to you about, you have played in bands before. Uh, I was checking yeah. out your band, Ari, which was, mm-hmm. I mean, I, it definitely sounded, you know, kind of reminded me of some aspects of Refused. or I don't know, were you guys into like Converge or Botch or any of that kind of like metalcore stuff? or? Botch, for sure, I liked quite a bit back then, especially the song like, I, I'm not too well versed in them. I really love the song like St. Matthew Returns to the Womb. I remember that being like a big watershed moment. And right around the time we recorded that, I feel like All We Love We Leave Behind by Converge had come out and I was really big into that album. But also, yeah, yeah Shape of Punk to Come. I was listening to that a lot um, when I was like 18, 19. So. Yeah, you kind of yeah, hit the I mean, nail there, on there the head, of, actually. Yeah, I mean, well, there was, I mean, just, I, I don't even know those bands that well, but I, I knew that scene, I'd heard some of it, and it was always, yeah. it seemed like that was sort of the first kind of like, well, I mean, there was definitely the 80s bands of hardcore that kind of incorporated like, 
you know, thrash and like, you know, bands like Slayer and stuff into it. But, you know, this was almost like a real mathy kind of yeah, um, well, that real record, hyper chops kind of thing in, 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 in a hardcore context. That Ari record was weird writing it because there were like the um, the hardcore elements of it, especially like I think the biggest band I would be remiss to mention would be Every Time I Die, which was a huge band for me growing up. Um, I don't know them. Oh, they're so good. They're uh, from Buffalo, they really New are. York. Um, they uh, their album New Junk Aesthetic is like required listening. But um, what I personally was listening to a lot back then, the two albums I remember specifically was um, Illmatic, which I know you all talked about on the, mm-hmm. and The Con by Tegan and Sarah. Those oh. were like while because I wrote all the music on that, that Ari sounds, record. That sounds like a crossfade episode. I was, <laughs> yeah, I was right? yeah, I was, I was listening to Ari, and that did not come across in the music. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's something I recognize because I like was a part of the writing process, but I think there is some hip hop influence in the vocals and lyrics. Like, there's a Pusha T reference in the song "Womb," which I've always, re- or no, in the song "Danville," which I've always really loved. Um, but those were those are the two albums I remember listening to the most while I was writing the music of that record. So I guess they were weirdly probably the most influential on that one. Nice. Uh, you know, your, the most recent album that on, on Bandcamp from Ari actually has the tag, I believe, Mean Grooves. Do you, do you consider that groovy music? <laughs> I don't know. Is it groove uh, metal? It we is. Bro- that album came out after we broke up, so I was not involved with putting it up on, um, on Bandcamp. I don't know how those genres It doesn't get the Hester it. Groove seal of, of approval? No, no, no. It's uh, actually unfortunate. That. The album's called Who Cares because we had broken up and we were like, well, we might as well put out the fucking record we recorded. Um, but it, no, I don't know what's up with those genre names at all. <laughs> you know, it's it, actually, I don't know why you mentioned hip hop and like, so a couple of my old bands recorded this guy in, in town. He's a, a producer named Mike Wisty and he, he did like Lifter Puller, which kind of became the Hold Steady, who are pretty big. He did some stuff with Grant Hart. <laughs> Love the Hold uh, Steady. From, from uh yeah the lifter puller is an awesome band that you know it was kind of craig vince's first band and he did some stuff with a lot of stuff with grant hart from who's do like later in his life anyway he just we were talking one day and like we were in the studio and he's like i don't know how much older than he but old enough where he didn't grow up with hip-hop i guess mm. and he was like he felt like when he recorded people he could always tell with drummers even if they weren't doing anything remotely hip-hop whether they had sort of grown up with hip-hop or not like he sure. felt like it just it oh, permanently wow. kind of like the way they would groove and stuff, even in a context that was like way indie rock or, or punk or whatever it was, which I thought was kind of an interesting like observation from a guy that, you know, has recorded like a zillion local bands over, over his life. But mm-hmm. anyway, I did want to talk to you speaking of local scenes. Um, you, yeah. You're in Louisville, Kentucky right now. Yeah. As, it, as we speak, as literally we speak. where I'm sitting. Um, but <laughs> you know, Louisville it's not a city that comes up, I think, when people talk about great music cities. Mm-hmm. But I would say for underground rock, and this is going all the way back to like the 80s, 90s, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's really the amount of great bands that have come out of Louisville is is really great. I mean, it, it's an impressive rock town, it, it, especially for like more underground, you know, weirder kind of punk stuff. I mean, it, it, it's it, was it a cool place to kind of like be in a band and kind of grow up? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I bounced out of the scene pretty hard probably five years ago, but like grew up in it for sure, especially around the metalcore scene and then the hardcore scene towards the end there. But like, I mean, I guess I don't, I don't want to overstate it, but as far as I'm concerned, one of the most important bands of all time is from Louisville, which is Slint. 
Um, yeah. I and you can that. like feel that here. Like, yeah. It's you're not walking down the street and talking about slint to everyone that passes by, but like no. you can feel that in like I don't know the fucking water of the bands that like oh yeah slint yeah. was here you know they went to Saint X or whatever I think they went there um, so that I mean yeah sorry. slint was so influential I think they're probably the like most influential band that like nobody knows I mean the yeah. whole post rock genre does not exist and there was also there was great bands like Juno Forty Four was a great band like Rodan. Um, Tons of bands. I, I actually remember I was thinking about Louisville bands today, and uh, this might have been closer to your era, but I remember this band called Breather Resist, and I saw them up here. I think you, I want. I don't know if we played with them or a friend's band played with Breather Resist, Dude. but it was a really weird fit. But like that band was like fucking chaos. Uh, yeah, Breather Resist is amazing, and I know the vocalist fairly well. Um, and that band went on. To, to form other bands. Young like, Widows, uh, was that one? Young Widows, yeah. Trophies, tr- tr- oh, fuck, what are they called? Brainbanger um, was one of them. Like, they split off and formed a bunch of other underground, very influential bands, but Breather Resist is, like, one of those bands forgotten about when we talk about bands, like, converge and how important they are. It's like, Breather Resist was there, too. Like, do not forget the, how good those two yeah. records they put out were. They were like at least live because I knew them more from like seeing them live, and I think I remember I listened to them somewhat, but um, I think I have a CD somewhere. But like they were so chaotic, almost like yeah. kind of noise. At, I think at, it's like, that first album. Tempo. Yeah, I think it's that first album specifically. Charmer, I think it's called. Just like absolute chaos on <laughs> a compact disc. It's incredible. Yeah, and the other band I wanted to bring up because they were I still remember this day because they were one of the loudest if not the loudest small club band i ever saw it was a band called coliseum yep mm-hmm. they were holy shit i don't know if they're still <laughs> around but they were like huge here for a while especially like when i was in high school i remember those dudes being big deals yeah it, it was just i did they they played the triple rock social club very small club and they just stacked oh, i mean they stacked amps up it was like a you know, it's like a '70s Who concert type setup, like for a, a club that's like capacity is like 220 people. It was just, it was like insane. But I just, yeah. But anyway, yeah. There's tons of bands like, and Bonnie Prince Billy is from there, and that whole yeah. scene, and you know, um, the, uh, uh, God, yeah. What's the big band? Oh, My Morning Jackets from Louisville. I mean, yeah. it's oh. a lot of. <laughs> now you're speaking a little more like my, my language. Yeah. There's um just two bands I want to shout out. There's in Louisville. There's a band that's still really important but kind of like missed their mark on the global stage which is a band called emmanuel and i feel like anyone who around my age or a little older like if you live in the louisville jeffersonville indiana area like you know the 812 dirty squad dudes like that band was an incredible like i don't know post-hardcore screamo emo band that i recommend everyone look up they were on vagrant back in the day and oh okay Personal issues, as far as I understand it, made them explode right at the moment they were about to become the next biggest thing, um, which is really unfortunate. But their stuff's all on Spotify. Um, their album Soundtrack to a Head Rush and Black Earth Tiger are really yeah. good and really okay. important records to me. But these days, technically, they're from Oldham County, which is like 30, 40 minutes from Louisville, but same difference, really. Um, one of the biggest bands in hardcore, metalcore, right now is from here called Knocked Loose. Um, and I they're incredible. Know. They're one of the coolest bands doing it right now. Um, oh, yeah. There was another band. Oh, oh. Uh, I used to be in a band called Maps Norway, you know, kind of 
early 2000s to like maybe 2010 or whatever. Um, and we played, we were kind of, you know, in that kind of like British kind of post-punk revival kind of stuff, you know, like, I don't know, Interpol or stuff like that. Anyway, we opened for this band called VH, VHS VHS or Beta. Or beta? Yeah. Like we, opened, we opened for that band twice and the shows went really well, you know, cause like we, they were more on the kind of dance kind of rock thing that was going around like sort of like LCD sound system type stuff. But we were enough alike where the show, like they had a pretty good crowd and the crowd seemed to like us. So they asked us back to open for them at the entry. But I remember they were cool. They were cool. Yeah, I feel like they were one of those bands that were getting steam right around the time that um, My Morning Jacket was. And I always felt like VHS or Beta was going to be the next big thing from Louisville. And that didn't work out. But I guess Cage the Elephant came not too long after them. Oh, they're from like Bowling okay. Green or whatever, which is around yeah. here. That's, that's not real, though. Bowling Green's not real. No, and Cage Louis the Elephant isn't good, so it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> no, VHS, they were cool. They had all kinds yeah. of like crazy like synths and all, you know, it was, it was almost kind of like a rave meets rock kind of vibe live, mm-hmm. at least. It was, it was, those are fun shows, but yeah, anyway, I them. Little, they were at little, little Louisville for everybody. We're kicking it off with some bands that like literally sold 800 records from Louisville, <laughs> which is. Knocked Loose at least has sold a lot more than that. Okay. They are out, uh, they are unbelievably big. It's so weird. Okay, we'll check Emmanuel and Knocked Loose. Yeah. We'll check those out. Um, so let's, we'll, we'll switch gears. We're going to switch gears to Not a Louisville Band, um, but this is the band and the album that you chose. So tell us what it is, and I guess, you know, why, why did you pick it? Sure. First, I'll say, uh, I don't know if I've ever done anything as difficult as picking an album for this show. Really? It, <laughs> it, uh, was, so hard. it, it was the first one on your tongue on, when I DM'd you. I've been, I've been just hoping you I, i'm gonna be honest and embarrass myself and say i've been hoping you would invite me on the show so i've been thinking about this for <laughs> oh. a long time <laughs> wow, like it, that's awesome. at oh, one point we did. <laughs> at one point i was gonna be a bastard about it and tell, make you listen to courtney love's solo album because i think that's really good <laughs> no i'd be into that i'd totally be into that american sweetheart totally underrated record but i ended up going with my favorite album of all time which is three cheers for sweet revenge by my chemical romance just like it felt obvious to pick an album that I probably over-romanticize in the sense I feel like it changed my life in a lot of ways, which feels wow. weird to say sometimes about, like, I don't know, products. But, like, this album meant so much to me and still means so much to me. Like, it's an album I listen to constantly and have for 14, 16 years now. Yeah. It came out in you, were, you were, what, 10, 11 when this came out? 10. Yeah, I got it the year okay. it came out. Um and like still have that copy um and like w- refuse to get rid of the like dirty gross cd version of it but like <laughs> i i saw like the i'm not okay i promise music video on mtv or mtv2 or something back in the day and it was such i and i'd like listened to like blink 182 back then and even heavier stuff like because new metal was around when i was a kid and my dad was young enough that we'd listen to some of that stuff or grunge but I had never seen or heard anything like My Chemical Romance. And something about that record specifically and that era of the band has stuck with me like my whole life. Definitely. That's inter- Ten's an interesting age because you're sort of, you're becoming aware of stuff, but you, you haven't maybe developed the kind of like proto-teenager like ideas about what's cool or not cool or, you yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and I mean, like, they were a weird band in that sense. And now that I've gotten older, it's something I've been able to reflect upon. And unlike the, I don't know, like gender bending of 
80s hair metal where it's just like shitty dudes wearing makeup or whatever like my chemical <laughs> romance danced this interesting line of hyper masculinity but also like femininity if that makes sense mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it was like a really interesting thing for me as a kid growing up in catholic school to be like oh i don't have to be that i don't have to be that man that like this school is teaching me to be like if I want right. to wear tight jeans and grow my hair out, like or paint my nails, whatever, like it doesn't matter, you know. And like, I it's it's weird to like confine gender into such like arbitrary things, like how long your hair is. But you know, for like a ten year old, it was really interesting for me to see that and have it contrasted with an album about like gunfights and like, bad men. But like, yeah, yeah, and and dying in car crashes and going to hell and coming back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the band was all over the place. And as I've gotten older, it's been really interesting to reflect on how that like helped me kind of discover who I was by seeing this band kind of explore their own looks through sound and imagery um, in ways that I think were pretty important. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, obviously, I'm kind of I mean, I was aware of them. I mean, I definitely knew I actually didn't remember uh i'm okay but then when it came on i was like oh yes that song yeah. i remember mm-hmm. that and then also the the black parade song which seems to have this kind of weird memeification thing on like twitter <laughs> yeah. um, i actually noticed that a lot i think that like to millennials like there's something about this band like i just i've always been more aware of like gerard way mm-hmm. and and my chemical romance almost more on twitter in a weird way like it just get ref- it gets referenced a lot by you know people maybe your guys's age and a little bit older or whatever but it's kind of interesting that there is there's definitely seems to be something with this band, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. It seems to sort of stick with certain parts of like the millennial generation in a certain way. Um, I've always had this kind of interest. Like, I kind of I'm aware of the guy in, like you know, who does like the comic books, and I think there's mm-hmm. a question about that later. But um, I always have this idea of like a, a kind of like a, a sitcom where like it's it's like him and Jack White, and he's like Jack White's <laughs> like kid brother, and they're both these kind of like goth weirdos and like adventures <laughs> together i always um. <laughs> associate my chemical romance with avenge sevenfold because this uh avenge sevenfold city of evil came out around this time and if you look at those two bands avenge sevenfold looks like the jock older brothers of my chemical romance <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're more like metal dude metal dude right yeah 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 for yeah, sure yeah. but like they had the whole same kind of aesthetic going on but they would wear like i don't know like affliction t-shirts instead of a button up oh, or man. something <laughs> affliction yeah the, still the straightening 2000- their hair still wearing eyeliner but just wearing tough dude shirts instead oh man the, the 2000s so parts of that i hope never come back and <laughs> is, is one of those um so yeah like i mean this has been interesting for me i mean i think that at the outset it's probably like I don't think I could ever at my age or whatever stage in life, like access what this meant to you at 10. You know what sure. I mean? Just because it is sort of like, I don't know. It, you know, it, it's, it's just hard, you know, things at that age just hit you in such a way that's, that's so different than I think even if, as much as you love music growing up and when you get older and when you become adult, it just doesn't, I don't know. Things don't stick maybe in that same way that are super emotional. You know what I mean? But um, yeah. It's been cool. I mean, they're they're an interesting band in that they definitely have. I mean, when we can get into, it, why don't we play some here? Because I mean, Helena's I think a, a really good opener, and it, it pretty much kind of sets the table uh, on some of the things that you know that they do. I think, and and a lot of the things they do well, which is kind of. I noticed that they. I mean, it's definitely like punk in mm-hmm. a sense, like pop punk in a sense. But they they have a lot of chord changes that almost remind me of like Queen 
or like stuff like that. And there's mm-hmm. a certain like almost kind of like drama club aspect to it, I guess, yeah. that, that kind of, you know, where it's like we did actually with Kyle Hilliard, we did Blink-182, you know, and that's just very much like it's not musically all that different, but their whole persona is so much more. Yeah, we're just like, you know, three dumbasses like making dick jokes kind of thing, you know, where this is there's a certain like kind of goth dramatics to this that's kind of interesting. So let's let's play Helena because I mean it's it's a it's a really good opener and, and I, I like I particularly I like the 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 kind of chord changes um underneath the chorus I think are kind of a little different than a lot of bands probably in this era or of this kind of genre would do. Sure. Let's hit it. Is this one like a fan favorite? For sure. It's one of their biggest songs. Um, It's one of my least favorite songs on the record. Not that I think it's bad. Just like, um, you know, one of those (laughs) those, popularity things where you hear it so many times on the radio, it kind of loses its luster. But Mm -hmm. I think um, Frankie Arrow, who's the rhythm guitarist of this band, is probably my favorite guitarist ever. And his work specifically on this song and the way he like mixes his power chords with like different octave progressions and mm-hmm. like and the way he's almost trim picking power chords which usually you know you're only like on one string it's like a really interesting way he actually plays the song to complement Gerard's melodies yeah that like have made me appreciate the song a lot lately like learning how to actually play it i'm i'm stupid Blake what is trim picking it's very fast like alternate picking so up and down where it's just like, oh, I don't yeah. really know how else to describe it other than that. Yeah. It's just like picking up and down at a very high rate. I feel like, like, like Jason, we yeah. mentioned some black metal last, last yeah, there we go. show. Yeah. Like black okay. metal is like the truest probably distillation of trem picking. Okay. I feel like that's pretty essential to Frank Hero's visual performance too. Like I watched a lot of these music videos when I was younger and I never got to see these guys live, but I always wanted to. Um, but like his sort of really flailing everywhere style and look, I wonder how much of that was born out of the aesthetics of that kind of picking and how much was like his actual like playing style. Yeah, I don't know. Frank is like, I mean, it, musically, they're all interesting dudes because like mm-hmm. Gerard and Mikey, the singer and bassist respectively, are like theater kids. <laughs> the, but, yes, theater kids is a total vibe. Yeah, but like sure. Ray Toro, their lead guitarist, grew up on like Iron Maiden and Metallica records mm-hmm. and like playing that shit. And then Frank is just like from the hardcore scene, just like a New Jersey Italian kid. And they all came together to meld that whole thing into My Chemical Romance. And it feels like it shouldn't work. These like drama weirdos with this hardcore kid, with this geeky metal kid. And somehow they turn it into something like weirdly anthemic while not betraying its disparate parts or disparate roots mm-hmm. and i think it's like most evident on this record before you get to something like black parade which really went very high concept mm-hmm. okay yeah they definitely seem like they flirt with like i said like, there's parts that moments remind me of like queen or even like yeah like steve jones from the sex pistols always had this thing where like he's like i don't play beetle chords 
which meant like <laughs> anything other than like bar chords and like these guys play like beetle chords you know even though yeah. it's kind of within like uh a uh like hardcore kind of punk or you know pop punk hardcore kind of concept um i like the next one give them hell kid i like just because i like it's just a good sound i love that kind of overdriven bass tone that's at the mm-hmm. beginning of this it's kind of like classic like lemmy from motorhead or like actually we talked about yes last episode and chris squire from yes always had a good overdriven it's pretty common in punk but I don't know. I just think like an overdriven kind of like ampeg cab kind of sound is is good for sure. Uh, I think Give it was was it Howard Howard Benson who produced this record. Blake, mm-hmm. do you remember? Yeah, yeah. I think he did Motorhead too. Oh so wow, that would make that makes sense his sensibilities. But uh, yeah, this is track two. Give him hell, kid. I like that guitar part too. This song, aside from the hits, I think was one of the first Mike Kim songs I heard. And it always sticks out to me as just being like one of the good short songs on this album, but also being like the first time I started to hear Gerard Way storytelling as a <laughs> lyricist. And I still don't know what the fuck this song's about. <laughs> like he's talking about, you know, taking a train from New Orleans and getting pumped full of ephedrine and walking around in his best damn dress. But, like, I do remember it, like, really capturing me as a kid and be like, oh, shit, like, you can write fucking stories and songs. And then hearing interviews with him later, he'd be like, oh, I got that from this dude named Morrissey. And I was like, who's that? And I found the Smiths and all that. But, like, this song stands out to me as, like, a kind of watershed moment to be like, oh, you don't have to just, like, rhyme words and talk about, like, love or whatever. Uh, Yeah, it's right. Yeah, Morrissey, man, that's been a tough one for me. Yeah, right? The whole thing with him kind of turning, like, fascist or whatever, or always was, I don't know, but that's been a real sad one yeah. for me, because they meant a lot to me now, it's like, I mean, it's hard for me to listen to them now. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, this, you know, this, I think this is just a, I don't know, high energy, you know, this album is, like, super, super high energy. I was telling Jason, we were texting, and I was like, I've been doing something for work where I'm basically, like, writing, like, uh, like, checking URL structure and, like, writing metadata for, like, web pages and it's like kind of picky and like tedious work so sometimes i'm just like man these guys are wearing me out <laughs> like just like <laughs> blasting me out but um you know i'm not in the pit i'm i'm working on my computer oh uh the next one i wanted to get to um is well, there's a couple of things I want to talk about because I was trying to figure this out. Um, the next song is, you know what they do to guys like us in prison? And like, yeah. there was a lot of bands that did this sort of song titling, you know, these kind of like ironic statements almost that they, they do, which I think is kind of an interesting thing. I um, think you actually just spoke the words of a Fall Out Boy song title. Okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But yeah, I was, so I was trying to figure it out and like where it came from. And I, th- the, I was, thinking and then i got down this rabbit hole because this is kind of dumb shit that i do um but i'm pretty sure like uh there's an early black flag song because called you bet we've got something personal against you from like 82 or 83 and i'm thinking that might be the root of this like kind of i don't know what i don't even know what what kind of term to put on it but I, i like their song titles like i always thought that was a good like bit when when bands did song titles like that 
It uh, it could be a Black Flag reference. They're like very sp- outspoken about how huge they were, um, how big of Black fa- Black Flag fans they were, um, especially like Frank, who cites like Greg Ginn being his favorite guitarist, um, which makes sense because Greg Ginn's an absolute shredder. But uh, I love this song. It's also about going to prison, though, so it might have something to do with that. Okay, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, that's true, yeah. But in this one, I almost kind of, this is another one where I saw the kind of queen thing. It's almost like a super like pop punk, like killer queen kind of vibe to it, which I really dug. In the middle of a gunfight, in the like this part. Restaurant, they say, come with your arms raised. Like, I want to do that lounge lizard, like snapping thing with, in my pinstripe suit when this song begins. And then I just want to tear it off and throw myself nude into the, into the pit. Yeah, I was like thinking about this song last night and there's a weird juxtaposition between the first and second verse where the first verse like this whole album is about like guns and murder and blood <laughs> but like they uh, and I, I, I don't presume to speak for My Chemical Romance but there's almost this like fashionable view of violence or glorified view of violence in the first verse of this song which you know, they, like, have talked about growing up in Jersey and being around mob violence, not that they were connected to it, that I often think it's, like, an influence to how they, like, kind of glorify that stuff. But then the second verse is, like, this complete shift in attitude mm-hmm. right here, where the whole dynamic of the song falls apart and Burt McCracken's on it, like, screaming and going mad, and they're talking about, like, the the results of it, which I've always found an interesting way to, like talk about that stuff yeah i'd never i'd never sort of read that song this song in that way but it is like it's got distinct parts i think one of my favorite things about my chemical romance and that they delved into in their later work was like trying to mix genres in ways that would make you realize what genre they're in at any given point in a song i guess like Mm -hmm. you know obviously welcome to the black parade is a huge part of that teenagers is a huge part of that and several tracks on this are too uh and i never really thought about how those genre changes also like everything comes back to the storytelling with yeah. this band because Gerard Way wrote these songs as part of, you know, a loose concept, but a concept. Yeah. So good on you. <laughs> oh, Jason too. I don't have, this isn't like an insightful comment, but at two sixteen, there's a sick guitar solo. It's really good. It's so yeah, we're good. coming up on it. Okay. These songs are also short. I guess it doesn't make sense to like skip them out. <laughs> yeah, this is good. drops out right here so there's maybe your kind of iron maiden kind of vibe yeah 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 i also love that we got matt helgeson to say there's a sick guitar solo on this my <laughs> hey, Google romance song. Ray, or Ray you know, Toro I'm, is amazing I'm, I'm, i like a sick guitar solo you yeah. know this song features burt mccracken from the used in it and i think he really makes it he sounds like he's losing his damn mind throughout the song he does doesn't he yeah all right. Well, the next song is the hit, and I want. So this actually, made, this isn't certainly isn't unique to them. It's is a common thing, but it made me kind of look it up. And Jason, you always I always turn to you for like more theory stuff. Uh oh. But um, so this song is something that I always like in music, pretty much or rock songs is like, and I think I have this right. It's a pedal tone. Okay. So that's basically the idea. It's from classical music where like 
there's something in the bass that's like a steady tone and then chords are moving over at the top of that. Oh yeah, yeah, but yeah, the, yeah. But the so bass like, note stays constant, right? Yeah. So like the intro where it's going, but the bass is just following one chord per measure. Yeah, yes. yeah. I know what you. I know where you're at. So anyway, that's a cool. I always it's one of those little things in music I never knew what to call it, but I always like that like tactic or whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this is you know this is uh well you know Blake you should talk about this because this was probably the song that kind of put them on the map, right? It was yeah, and it was the first song I ever heard by them. Um. It was that music video all my chem fans love to quote. You know, it opens with them being like, you like D&D, Audrey Hepburn, <laughs> Fangoria, Harry Houdini, or whatever. Uh-huh. And it was like this fake trailer for a movie, but with these weirdo goth dudes. And yeah, I, I, like the song in retrospect is so simple. But it's really clever. Like, there are really clever hooks in it, and it's really catchy, and it has some parts that kind of, like, break your brain for a second towards the, like, three-quarters of the way in. But something about it, like, I don't know if there's a science behind why this song blew this band up the way it did. I think a lot of it had to do with the music video. Like, it was such a well-created music video and really Mm -hmm. sold the idea of this trailer for a movie. And I guess theoretically you could look at it as a trailer for the album that was coming three cheers for sweet revenge. Cause this was the first single and yeah, it just I mean, like, I was fucking gobsmacked by the whole presentation <laughs> of this song. And I would say too, I mean, I'm certainly not nearly as invested in the band or whatever. I mean, I'm aware of them, but you know, just in the abstract, if I was like an A&R guy to label, I, I would, I, I think I understand why this was the hit, you know, yeah. to me, cause it just, it has a certain hookiness to it that certain pop songs just sort of naturally have that you kind of like, you can't really fake that. You know what I mean? And I, so if I was at the label, I'd be like, this is we're, we're this is one we're making a video for, you know what I mean? It's definitely like the poppiest, even if it's not the softest song on the album. Mm-hmm. Well, here it goes. I'm not okay. I promise. See, I always like that. It's a little weird tension you get between the, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Because you know that it's leading to like the motion of the next chord. this whole like back in the day as this band and like fallout boy or hawthorne heights whatever all these bands that were kind of blowing up from these weird screamo emo subgenres, like it was the mainstreamification of being okay with being a fucked up kid hmm. but i i don't know what it was about this one that made this band the biggest of them all i guess fallout boy probably surpassed them at some point Mm. but there is something to be said about the like hearing this song and how happy it sounds and how you want to tap your toe but also recognizing like oh this dude's singing about like 
some heavy stuff, you know? Like, his life is not going great. Obviously, the chorus nails it on the nose, but, like... Right, right. I think there's, like, something... It, it's an earworm that makes you think about <laughs> the singer's mental health in a way that I feel like people latched onto, especially if... Especially in the early 2000s, we weren't talking about this stuff a lot, you know? It was, like, interesting to see it on MTV and kind of recognize, like, this dude's singing about being upset. That's weird you know and it's not like mm-hmm. adam's song type of upset where i spilled the apple juice in the hallway and i'm so sad or whatever like right. it was a cleverly written song but it's like it's in d major you know it's yeah. not a sad a sadly written song either yeah but the, the drop here is really good too Anyway, just had to let that play out. Um, it is like <laughs> uh, so good. Like, it's- like the the magic of this track, I think, is that like you've got the very desperate, almost choking vocals on this, mm-hmm. plus that very like I don't know. Like you said, it's it's joyful, it's tappity towing, but it's also uh, very melancholy in, in yeah. like the chords that they've chosen, yeah, even I mean, in a, even in a happy major key. It's I think. The quintessential, personally, the quintessential, more than the Black Parade, uh, quintessential My Chemical Romance song to me. Sure. I, you know, I guess, I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying. I would push back a little bit about, like, the first time that, like, dep- I mean, you know, just because, like, I grew up with, like, Kurt Cobain, you know. Yeah, I guess mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say point. that, like, that the whole 90s was pretty, like, mopey as well, but, you know. As yeah, America I guess- com- As America Comes Unraveled, you know, music just <laughs> sure, sort of sure. followed it. But for the... Yeah, the incoming generation too. I think is what uh, what Blake is mm. is referencing. That's totally a better that, way totally to look at it. Yeah. yeah, like to and walk I'm, it back. Like I didn't think about I'm, depression until Gerard Way said the word depression. You know, but, like I totally get what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. For sure, I'm sure Gerard Way was like a huge like you know Nirvana fan probably or whatever. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um. But the next, uh, so I'm kind of going in order here, but then I'm going to skip around. But um. So this next song I like, and maybe if I had somewhat of a critique, I would say. Like, sometimes this album wore me out a little bit. And part of the, you know, the ups and downs of the show is I tend to, like, I don't tend to do this in my normal life is, like, listen to one record, like, over and over and over and over and, and stuff like that and take notes on it and things like that. So I got to kind of divorce myself from that aspect of it. But I like um, The Ghost of You. Mm. I thought it was a really nice kind of, like, breather in an album that's, like, fairly breakneck, you know. And I, I really like that when they kind of, I like the guitar tones, I like the kind of more dreamy, kind of chorusy, you know, tremolo guitar stuff. And it's re- like really interesting, uh, like interplay between the two parts of the guitars. And I just thought it was it was kind of cool that they, um, I don't know, just, just changed up the tempos and the feel a little bit. And this, I, and in addition, I want to ask you guys a question because I purposely didn't listen to anything before this or anything after that. And I know the Black Parade's a big deal, but. I kind of got the sense that in the sense that we talked about around the fur by the Deftones with Alex Navarro from Giant Bomb, that was a very transitional album. I felt like it was sort of the hinge, you know, from what they had been to like what they were going to be. And like, do they kind of take, there's always like, there's little elements in this album. Like I think, you know, uh, guys like us in prison with almost the more queen stuff, did they kind of become more like, I don't want to say ambitious. Cause that's sort of saying it's not ambitious to just be a rock band, but. Did they, I don't know, kind of become different after this, or did they sort of like have the one formula? Uh, you take it, Blake. They definitely became more ambitious. Um, the weird thing about Mike Kim is all their records are these high concept records that like tell stories from start to finish, 
I I can't ever keep track of the story Gerard Way is trying to tell, but th- that's apparently what they are. So even like there's still so even on their first record, I brought you my bullets, you brought me your love. There's still that ambition to use the album to tell a narrative, and then that this album just seems like that ba- the band finding themselves and finding their sound. By the time they got to Black Parade, though, like they. I think they were strong enough as a band that they could really pull off what they were going for in their last two records. And when you hear that thing, like, I think a lot of people wince when I say this, but I'm going to stand by it. Like, I feel like it's the closest we've ever gotten, my generation specifically, um, to like our Pink Floyd's The Wall or whatever. Like, Mm -hmm. it's a record with so many layers and so many different sonic dynamics going on at once and song types that all work as a unit that show like i mean it's like a record that i think as time has gone on people have really looked at as like oh shit like those dudes were really on to something there and i don't think you get there without the steps in between and seeing the early ambition but by the time they hit black parade which is usually recognized as their best record like you see a band that not only is at the top of their craft i think is leagues beyond the other bands that came up around them and came up with mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Um, no, and yeah. then their album after that, I don't okay. care for, but yeah, that, that, that makes sense. I mean, that's sort of like, I, I guess I consider them sort of transitional albums. Like, I guess the, maybe the classic is like rubber soul by the Beatles. Yeah. Where it's like, Oh wait, we're not quite doing like, you know, I want to hold your hand anymore, but it's not mm-hmm. fully like Sergeant peppers or Abbey road at that point, you know, which I always find those those albums interesting, but anyway, this song is number six is the Ghost of You, and I I just I really liked it was it took it down a little bit, but um I like the guitar tones, and I I think these are cool guitar parts, and it was kind of nice to have a little bit of a a breather so to speak, I guess in in the running order of the album. All right, here's the Ghost of You. Doing more kind of arpeggiated stuff is cool. This is a song I only recently like came around on. I used to. Oh yeah, didn't didn't rub you right? Yeah, I mean I've never like hated it, but it's usually on the skip list when I'm playing mm-hmm. through this record. And uh, I challenged myself to learn all of the guitar parts on this album, Ooh. and I gave up after a while. I, I didn't give up. I just didn't finish. But um, <laughs> this was a song I like sat down to learn, and like as I kind of dissected it on that website Songster or whatever, and learned how it was played, I was like, I had to listen to it over and over, and I was like, wait, fuck, this is actually a really, really awesome song that comes at a really great part in the record, considering, like Matt said, like how high energy the front. All the songs before and all the songs after it are like I think it yeah, fits it's a good, so well. The kind of pacing aspect of of that album, you know. Yeah, um, I think the song after this, "Jet Set Life," is going to kill you. Continues that slower pace a little bit, but like even then, it picks up a, quite a bit more than this one. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to Jet Set, and this is another thing that um, might point to things that were ahead of them. I don't know. Like I said, I tried to just sort of stay within this album, but um, on on Jet Set. I, I like the organ at the beginning, um, and sometimes I wish like they seem like they have these inventive little ideas, but they they only have like the the patience to do them for like fifteen seconds. 
And sometimes I wish they would maybe explore some of those impulses a little bit more. Like there's a little cool kind of organ thing at the beginning of the song that I really like. Like the kind of Hammond. Mm-hmm. That's a real soul kind of sound, you know? Oh, very, very like gospel. Yeah. Um, the video documentary, like tour diaries of this album, which, uh, which Blake linked me to before we started recording was it revealed to me a lot about how this album got made and how it got structured. They credited Howard Benson, the producer with like literally teaching them how to structure a song, how to like put verse, chorus, verse, chorus, uh, you know, bridge, chorus, end. Um, and so I think that is how you end up with things like that, like sort of one-off ideas and sort of, I don't want to call them, call them aesthetic choices, but like almost setting scene type ideas. And then mm-hmm. it, I won't say devolves, but it becomes, the songs tend to become what they are by the end in a lot of ways. Uh, and this song is a really good example of that, where it starts off with an organ and sort of like an almost cowboy-like uh, gallop to the drums. And then, you know, it turns into a chugging rock song. Yeah, yeah, there's an- another aspect of this song, too, that it was the most noticeable to me, but I noticed it the whole time, and it's probably my most negative reaction to this album, is like, this record is mastered so hot. Mm-hmm. It's like, you can almost hear compression artifacts, like when he is, he, like, on choruses, like, it's almost kind of, like, flickering, kind of, like, digital distortion, because, like, they're just, I mean, this record is a brick wall, like, mastered. I think, I don't know, that, but that was a lot of, ear, I think, Elms of that ear, because it was, like... I mean, I think they were mastering for, like, you know, Apple ear earbuds. Right, know, really, like really shitty sound rate, systems. Like, you know, I think it was made to, like, sound good mm-hmm. on, like, low bitrate MP3s and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, man, some of the records... And I, I experienced this with records... I, I, records from this era that I like, too. But, man, they really slammed these records back then. Like, there's just no, like, dynamic range. Yeah, they've reissued it, I think, a couple times on vinyl. I don't know if those reissues sound different, but... Um, they the, probably uh, do on vinyl. I mean, you you, you yeah. can't physically push vinyl as far. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, just the, there's like certain physical limitations of the the, the format. So it probably does sound better on vinyl, just because I know you can't. Like, I, I know friends that have done records where they had to do a different master for vinyl. Yeah, I'm wondering if they'll do a remaster because the 20th anniversary is coming up in four years or so. So they might finally remaster it because there are like. <clears throat> depending on which headphones I use or speakers I listen to this album through, sometimes I'm like, this sounds kind of terrible. <laughs> it is harsh. I mean, but that was really the style of like, yeah, you know, a, they wore an onion on the belt. This was the style of the times. So. Yeah. Um, the, I, also, another cool little intro thing I thought was on um, Hang 'em High, which is the uh, number 10. It's almost got like a little Ennio Morricone kind of spaghetti Western feel, which I thought was yeah. kind of cool. I think Hang Em High is the most underrated record or song on this record. I think it's fucking rad. Like starting at Thank You for the Venom, we enter the cool zone of the record where every song (laughs) is just out of goddamn control. I'm sorry. I don't know if we can cuss, by the way. Please do. Please do. Um, And Hang Em High, I think, is like this band being like, I don't don't want to oversell it, but being like, we're heavy too. Like, remember we grew up in hardcore bands and this song like has Keith Morris from black flag and circle jerks on it. And Whoa. It's like, I, didn't yeah, know that. It's, I don't know where he is in the song. He's probably just in the background somewhere doing like backing vocals, but he's like listed in the credits. <laughs> and I think it's the perfect song to throw him on. Cause it's 
like yes. having grown up listening to a lot of that stuff, I listen to this song and I'd be like, this this fits in with like hardcore songs on an emo <laughs> record or, you know, a pop punk adjacent thing. Wow, uh, Keith Morris, that's crazy. Yeah. This would represent like the only four minutes of his life that Keith Morris ever shut the fuck up. <laughs> man, like, that guy is I love him, but man, he's a he's just a motor mouth and a crank. Like a yeah. classic uh, a classic weirdo. Um, but let's hear it. But yeah, that little kind of like, you know, good, bad, ugly thing's cool. Uh-huh. This song, I think, is the most reminiscent of their album before it. Uh, mm-hmm, I brought mm-hmm. you my bullets, you brought me your love. Especially songs on that album like Our Lady of Sorrows, where they're like still pulling from those hardcore roots and they have a franticness to them. But this feels like the best version of that. Like, like a band that, what well, a band that grew up in hardcore bands in high school that like got older and wanted to write one of those songs as an adult. If that makes sense. So it still has this kind of like throw all the parts at the wall and see what sticks, but there's still an intelligence to it and an experimentation and giving it this like Western like mystique um, that I think really is really interesting. I don't know if that made sense, but it made sense in my head. No, I hear it does. I like I gotta agree. Yeah, the the, the parts of this song come together. I like that you mentioned it sounds like the previous stuff because the previous stuff often sound very sounded very soupy and like slapdash in a lot of ways. Like yeah. like you said, still still with a purpose and still with an intent, but very much less like structured and predictable than what this music can be and like almost less pleasing in a lot of ways. So more punk, but maybe less catchy. I think and I think the song holds on to some of that. Yeah. Where it feels slapdash but ironically also more cohesive. <laughs> man talk about it they love bringing it down and bringing it back up it's the best every song <laughs> ever recorded should do that so i love it it never <laughs> gets old it down, to me. man you gotta break it down man so I had, I had one more I wanted to get to just because I think this is just a really great kind of like soaring chorus. It reminded, parts of it reminded me a little bit about a band. I don't know, if, Blake, if you like at the drive-in at all. Love them. Um, yeah, I mean, they were, they were an awesome band. Um, you know, later those guys, you know, formed Mars Volta. But um, at the drive-in, that, 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 you know, relationship with Command record is a, an awesome record. And this mm-hmm. reminded me a little bit of that. It wouldn't surprise me if those guys were fans, but um, not a fashion statement. Um, I don't know. It's just a good chord change to me. And just a really like kind of anthemic chorus. My favorite My Chemical Romance song. I was going to say, you were spitting your mouth off in the Discord about this being their best song. So I hope you can defend that while we play it.
think the thing about this song that makes it <clears throat> the best on this record and my favorite song by them is it's all the disparate parts of the album like the pop sensibilities of like I'm not okay I promise and Helena and the violence and viciousness of something like prison or um, the last song on the record I never told you what I did for a living mixed with their hardcore and punk roots it's all those parts which kind of exist on their own throughout the album as one piece mm-hmm. and I think like they pull it off in oh. a way that like I'm surprised by <laughs> like it seems hard to make all that work but they'll go into like that be- opening riff which has so much attitude and so much anger in that first verse into this like soaring chorus which is like a beautiful chorus like Gerard Way can sing his fucking ass off and then go right back into the anger and the viciousness and then just keep this song going for like three and a half minutes in a way that's exhausting and has a bunch of parts going on at once but still works in the end. There is something to be said for the way that Gerard Way, like, I, I use the word, uh, he's almost like choking through the song and mm-hmm. just gasping his way through. And it's like, typically you imagine the singer, like the leader of the song as like your guide through it. Like, I'm going to transition from different parts of the instruments and different parts of the story. And it's like, is this the guy we're following? He, like, <laughs> sure. he can he can barely, and, but like, that's, that's the tension, right? That keeps yeah. the songs interesting to me. Is that he like his voice sometimes frankly can't keep up like he's written something that he cannot sing that well so he just tends to like break it and let it loose and that becomes a whole different form of of beauty in itself like you were saying I agree like he's clearly a very talented singer and mm-hmm. always like even in the early stuff but I heard it this album described once as like the album right before Gerard Way learned how to how to actually sing. And, like, I think that's true, where, like, clearly is, he's naturally is. talented, but he hasn't, like, you know, he probably doesn't do vocal warm-ups yet or yeah. something. <laughs> and I mean, like, who knows? Maybe he took, like, you know, I know vocal lessons teach you, like, how to, you know, physically yeah. Oh, yeah. use he, your body. He definitely got some of those before, before Black Parade, yeah. But, like, I think that's probably true, but I think another thing worth pointing out is, like, Gerard Way was a fucked-up dude. Like, he, yeah. after this album came out and blew up, he had to, like, get sober oh. um, off multiple substances oh. and he has been a smoker <laughs> a chain smoker his whole life mm-hmm. and so his voice is also just going through it on top of maybe not yeah. being the most like technically proficient as a singer sure. like he's really pushing it to its limits because he's like abusing his body ah uh, gotcha well i mean i i think we we pretty much i think we hit hit the highlights here um that i think I don't know. Hearing it again, not a fashion statement. Definitely, I can see why that's your favorite. Um, yeah, it was definitely. I think it captures that kind of like overwrought. I mean, like you know, these guys are just doing too much all the time. Like <laughs> yeah. that's kind of like the band. It's like doing too much. The band, you know what I mean? Um, in in, in kind of I don't know, but that's you know I, I appreciate bands that go for it that to that degree. You know, I feel like you have to sort of flirt with almost being ridiculous in a way. I do agree with you because it's like I think if I heard this album for the first time in 2020 I probably wouldn't care for it that much I'd be like it's kind of (laughs) cool like whatever yeah I mean 
<laughs> hearing it in the moment and it being like in a lot of ways the starting point for my taste in music and like yeah. getting into the misfits and black flag and hardcore and punk and fucking morrissey and all these other things like that was really huge for me in a way i don't know if you'll get if you don't hear it when you're 10 years old in 2004 you know yeah i mean you know i i have to say i mean Parts of it I definitely chuckled at at certain sure. points just because it's, it's so, like, overwrought in a sense. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, I totally understand why it, it, it hits people and, and why the band means something to people. Because, you know, I think it's always easy to be, like, sort of unambitious and just sort of, like, I mean, let me be an asshole about a band here. I guess I would rather this than, say, just, like, the Black Keys. Yeah, who kind of just like sit there is just sort of a, like a, a lump of like rock music to me. You know what I mean? It's just sort of like semi tasteful and shit. You know, yeah. I don't know. I'd rather have this kind of like teenage angst kind of stuff. So it was fun to listen to. I had a good time with it. So thanks, Blake. No problem. So I've been very curious because I picked this song or I picked this band, um, and I had no, I have no idea how you guys are going to react to Deer <laughs> because they're, I mean. People say bands are unique. I would say Deerhoof is truly a unique band um, in, in how they approach music. I guess I appreciate them just because, uh, I mean, it, part of it is I knew you guys had both played in bands. And um, I just have an appreciation for how certain bands like interact musically together to sort of form this thing that's, that's very, could be very odd. Um, so yeah, this is Apple O by Deerhoof. They're a, a San Francisco band started in the mid to late 90s. are still going. They actually put out two records this year. Um, it's their album from, uh, I believe, 06 called Apple O. I think it's kind of a, you know, one of the albums that kind of put them on the map. It was Pitchfork reviewed it pretty highly that year. And like a bunch of people at like Karen O from Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's are big on it. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I, there, it was one of those bands like these guys would hate this stuff. I have no idea. Um, so I'm curious, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Deerhoof. I think it slams. Yeah. I'm, I'm so into it. Um, yeah. Where do you, where do you want to start? Me? Can I pick? Yeah, yeah. Did you take okay. timestamps to this puppy? I have, inf- yeah, weirdly enough, I have infinitely more notes about this album than I do three tiers. <laughs> uh, my first note is track one, 208 to the end of the song. Um, yeah. Which well, I think is just like the last bridge chorus and then outro riff, but. Yeah, well, let's hear, let's hear the beginning just to kind of give people a, I actually, Dear Who's one of those bands I really struggle to describe. I, I would say there's sort of a weird mix of like, almost like whimsical like 60s kind of rock with this very odd kind of like math rock and i don't know man you just kind of noise and noise and 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 just kind of avant-garde stuff but i think one of the things also i like about deer hoof is like a lot of bands that sort of challenge you know the way you conceive of like music or sort of like avant-garde or like do these kind of weird tricky kind of almost like there's a lot of weird stutters in this music where you you wonder what time signature it's in or if they're mm-hmm, lapsing mm-hmm. in and out of time signatures. Boy, I had I had so much fun with that. Like counting this stuff, Greg Sonier, uh-huh. uh, which I'll tell a story later about Cena Live, but Greg Sonier, the drummer, is an absolute monster. Um, however, those type of bands, I think, I generally associate that they are very like, generally like kind of dark. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Very like aggressive and and very like macho in certain ways like you know uh last week remember that animals as leaders song jason yeah 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 you know they're doing all this really like crazy but you know it's coming from a very like dude rock kind of thing where these guys are coming at that same thing and it's very kind of abstract and weird and kind of challenging like what you think about rock music but 
it's it's coming from a very like dreamlike kind of almost childlike place which i think is odd and i don't think a lot of bands besides deer hoof really have that um but anyway this is dummy discards a heart and um let's play the beginning and then skip to you know 216 or what what the timestamp was describe this band to my partner last night without her actually hearing it just be like explain what i had heard and i kept like alternating between these wildly different explanations at first i was like it's kind of like sonic youth where it's like really noisy and you can tell they own like probably some agnostic front records back in the day but they also really like like getting in touch with their emotions because the vocals are really pretty but then yeah it's then i like thought about it more and it reminds me of a lot of approaches like japanese alternative bands take which i hmm. i mean i believe the singer satomi matsuzaki is japanese yeah so remi- yeah go ahead it reminded me of bands like i think you all talked about them on the show maximum the hormone or boris Ooh, yeah baby yeah or boris or even deer and gray kind of like fucks with this where the music is very harsh I mean, this, I don't want to say this music is harsh, but like it has kind of a, an overdrive or a dissonant mm-hmm. quality to just how distorted mm-hmm. it is. But then it's contrasted with an element of almost J pop or like more poppy, the more poppy side of Japanese music. And it's yeah. like, how do we get those parts to work out? And done well, you get a band like Maximum the Hormone, which does it incredibly, or Deerhoof, which I think like does it in their own weird obtuse way like yeah yeah they yeah, remind I mean, me of the band Chibo Motto which is oh yeah totally. yeah Sean Lennon's old band uh, and I wrote down um, they're an accessible Chibo Motto but still not very accessible talking about <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I mean they were definitely part of it I think I mean they're they're an American band and uh, Satomi Matsuzaki is the singer and she moved mm-hmm. I think the US in the the late 90s and then they formed um but the other guys, Jerry Sonnier, Ed Rodriguez, John Dietrich. Um, so they were definitely part of like the American underground scene. You know, yeah. they, they weren't specifically a Japanese band. Um, and there was a lot of bands that were doing kind of weird, you know, this kind of weird stuff in the 2000s. Um, so they're yeah. definitely part of a scene. But um, I, I have to say, too, like they, they've put out like I think 15 or 16 records. They put out two records this year. So like Good I would encourage you to go and, and their catalog is very diverse too. like other albums. They, this is a very live band record. Like I think they did this right to tape as a live band, but they've done other things that were more, you know, production oriented, more digital mm. with, you know, elements of kind of digital editing. So their whole, like their whole, uh, catalog is pretty interesting and cool. Um, so I'd encourage you to check out cause they do a lot of different stuff, but, um, yeah, yeah, I I read that this was sort of like a tipping point for the band. This album, uh, like like you were mentioning with Deftones, where it's like this maybe was transition for them between more of a noise punk ish thing and into more art rock. Is that true? As somebody who's listened to them before, do you, do you think that's true? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was such a change. It just sort of seemed like it it brought some things about the band into focus, and 
you know, it, the one thing about this record is like as weird as it is and sometimes off-putting as it can be, it has this weird sort of pop sensibility. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. even within these very like kind of weird like like rickety kind of like rhythms, like it's catchy in its own weird way, which is kind of the an interesting part about them. Is it's sort of like mm-hmm. it seems inaccessible, but in a, in a weird way, it's kind of like pop too. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, where do you think we want to go next, Blake? I have just immediately track two, um, the whole song. Cool. I, uh, I mean, they're so short, so. Yeah, I, I really think the front half of this record is really good. It started to lose me about three quarters of the way in and then caught me back in with the last two songs, but like, what, like oh, the first run of seven songs, I think, are all fucking bangers. Nice. This is track two, My Diamond Star Car. As long as it's the one on Spotify, because apparently the reissue has a different track listing, I found out. Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah, we're going with this is. one, though. This is okay. the same one I had. Spotify. This band, like, sounds like... You know when a band's jamming? Kind of playing around. Like, mm-hmm. playing whatever parts come to them. And usually, it always sounds terrible. <laughs> but it's, like, fine, because you're just kind of, like, warming up. But every now and then, there'll be one part that's really good. That mm-hmm. you just accidentally stumble upon. This band, every part feels like that one good part of a jam band. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like where they never are really. They sound like they're not trying very hard and yet making it sound great. And I feel like mm-hmm. try, sounding like you're not trying hard is almost harder than trying. <laughs> Does this make sense? Like, yeah, no, I, I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Feel like they're held together with like scotch tape. <laughs> but it, it's weirdly actually very tight though if you listen yeah, like, you know they're stumbling yeah, like, through it but in amazing ways right. and just like casually flipping from like 11 8 time signatures to a 6 6 to yeah. like a or 6 8 to like a 5 4 just like like it's nothing yeah i wrote down that they are uh their guitarist specifically uh it's unpretentious shred and that people are Ooh. so afraid to use the guitar to just fucking make sound and fuck yeah. with it but not do yeah, yeah. like they're just being crazy with it and it sounds awesome yeah and i have to say I, I i saw them live at a bar called big v saloon in saint paul around this time and like they were so good live at this point um greg saunier the the drummer is he he i think he's might be like six two or six three and he had kind of long hair he basically looked like a surfer guy big boy and, and he like he had this huge bass drum and this huge kit, and then he sat on like a, a milk crate, so like his knees were like above, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And he was just <laughs> like, like above his hips, yeah, like this whirling dervish, like kind of animal from the Muppets kind of thing. And it was just like, <laughs> and his whole thing looked so uncomfortable and weird. It, it, and then like you know, and he's really tall, and she's really small, and like it was just they were just a really striking live band. I remember seeing, it, I was just like, oh my god, this. Is, and they and they just you know they whipped through this stuff live like super precise. You know what I mean? Like, yeah dead on tight and stuff and it was just like and their their personas were so different and everybody in the band it was seemed like they should be in like a different band from the other person and stuff but i don't know it was interesting i guess that leaves our next timestamp or song blake i have track four uh 122 and all i all i wrote for this song was vocals are the best <laughs> all right starting just before then uh this is panda 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 Panda, 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 
like I said, vocals are the best. <laughs> they really are. <laughs> I guess I don't know much about this era of, like, the Bay Area music and punk scene, but, like, outside of, like, Fat Wreck and Epitaph bands, but, like, were they unique in that scene, or were there other um, bands coming out like that? I mean, I don't know if it was San Francisco so much, but, you know, on, on a national level, there was a lot of weird bands, you know, like Oxes or U.S. Maple or, you know, okay. that were doing, like, really weird kind of stuff. This song is interesting, and this is something <clears throat> lyrically that, I actually hadn't thought about the lyrics on this album that much until this week. And I think she's doing some interesting things. I think that she's sort of playing. I mean, cause I mean, ultimately these are like super hip, like San Francisco, like art scene people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think she's kind of playing with like, especially on this song where some of the lyrics are like so ridiculous, almost like Western kind of stereotypes, particularly about like Asian women. Sure. You know, like, especially when she goes like, Panda, 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 China. It's yeah. almost like, mm-hmm. I don't know if she's kind of like, ironically kind of taking the piss out of <clears throat> maybe it feels like Western it. It feels people's like, it. like fetishization of like, kind of Eastern innocence, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm getting way over my head here, but you know what I mean? No, like, I, I think, it's, I hard, I think it's hard to ignore that. Yeah. It's not what my one note about the lyrics are the lyrics are nonsense. Um, but like, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't have that reading on it. And now I'm way more interested to know like a, if that's correct and B re-listening to it with that context. Yeah. Cause I mean, these are like super like hip, you know, like plugged in people, right? Like they're not like these naive child, like whatever ingenues or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but anyway, I think she, she's kind of an interesting, the way she does her persona, I think is, is it. it I don't, I'm not saying it's insincere, but I think sometimes she, there might be more irony behind it than people might notice at first. Yeah. Um, the next one I have written down is track seven, just from the beginning. And I remember really liking that the opening riff to this song is really simple. And it kind of sounds like Country Death Song by Violent Femmes, which I was into that. Um, mm-hmm. But it twice just changes up in ways I didn't expect. And I thought it was cool that they took a riff so simple and surprised me with it twice within the measure. All right. Here's track seven sealed with a kiss. Yeah, this is such a cool, weird song. I like that, like muting the left hand loose muting. I love that. My like, <clears throat> sorry. My knowledge of um, San Francisco bands of this of this era is basically like Jawbreaker and Rancid, and whatever Fat Mike signs to his label, I guess. <laughs> oh, but man. like, it was interesting to find out this band was from San Francisco and that they like embody at least what you're you hear about what San Francisco art scene was really like, and like, it was cool to kind of hear that personified in a band. I guess delve into that a little bit. Like what do you mean? What what like is stereotypical or typical yeah, of I a guess, San Francisco band to you like that? 
like what what's not typical about them or is oh, like, oh what, what is what is typical what what comes through oh yeah i guess it's like you know you hear about like the hate ashbury or you know the people that moved out there to kind of explore art or find themselves and it was always this mm-hmm. avant-garde trippy stuff and if you're not into it you're not into it but the people that are into it really believe in it and this music has the same quality to me where it's like if someone listened to this and didn't like it or didn't get it, I couldn't fault them for it. But like when I heard it, something about it really connected with me, and I could see how obtuse and weird it was. But like it connected with me on a way that it felt like, oh, is that what they talk about when they talk about these people that yeah. <laughs> move out west to find themselves and create art? And it's always like weird <laughs> yeah. to people. I mean, you know what I'm saying? And I think in the punk scene, you know, well, part of the part of the problem is, you know, San Francisco has like effectively been like destroyed by yeah. tech money at this point. But, you know, in the old punk days, I think there was definitely sort of a somewhat of a divide between like the L.A. bands in punk, which were sort of seen as much more like in the black flag mold as sort of, you know, real heavy and like macho shit. And then the, the San Fran bands were considered maybe a little more artier and stuff like that, you know, like I guess if Black Flag was like L.A., then like, you know, Dead Kennedys were san francisco and they were a little more you know jello kind of flirted with sexuality a little bit and yeah they were definitely more of an you know they had that kind of surf guitar and they weren't just like straight up like chugging power chords and i think that sort of extended for a long time and you know san francisco kind of being like an artsy and you know obviously sure. the, gay, the gay community there in, in traditionally in the in the 20th century um so yeah i think i think i think san francisco was considered a very like bohemian town or used to be before you know everyone had to move because it got too expensive but this uh extending like extending the punk connection this definitely feels like a band Blake Schwarzenbach would have been into the dude from Jawbreaker he always like after Jawbreaker he experimented with all kinds of weird stuff and I wonder if he if oh, um, he like was into this band specifically being from the same era area and era yeah I'm sure he knew that you know what I mean I'd be surprised almost yeah. if he didn't know them you know just being kind of contemporaries in that sort of scene yeah. you know um I have one song that I have sort of a crackpot theory about. Um, <laughs> if you guys want to hear my crackpot theory, of course, it's Apple Hit Bomb. It. Okay, we want to play it and you talk about it. Sure. Well, put it this way: this is sort of a. I think this is an interesting song. The album because it's, it's very like it kind of. It's so kind of more like antic and almost like has this weird kind of fizzy energy, and then this is sort of a almost mournful kind of song. I'm fairly certain this song is about Hiroshima. Mm. Okay. Cause okay, I, let's 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 take a quick listen. Okay, I'm ready for your theory. <laughs> okay. Well, the lyrics are going to be well, the first lyrics is in the trees it's lovely but it's lonely with a bone he will try to clone me. But the next the next verse is I think where it starts. Trees actually, I think this is a really pretty song actually. In general. Mm-hmm. But it's So like the Adam's rib thing after the apocalypse. Hmm. I'm getting really like Q, like tin tinfoil hat here. You 
Well, this band has like an outspoken anti-war stance, right? Mm-hmm. Like they put up a statement on their website I read back after 9-11 about like how American interventionism can only lead to more terrorism mm-hmm. around the world yeah. and more terrorist attacks on U.S. soil and stuff like not mincing words about their stances. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's something as, I guess, provocative and, and evocative as that. So said your mom when the bomb exploded was the lyric. I decided you would like another mom. And so the lyrics specifically say she's saying bomb, 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 not ba, ba, ba here. Mm-hmm. Oh. And also, I looked up and Hiroshima is traditionally like, there's a lot of references to like fruit and like Apple O, the album title. Hiroshima, I guess, the area is a big like apple orchard area. Hmm. So I don't know. There's just like little things like when you burn, now I'm free. Like, I don't know. I think there's something there, but it's a pretty. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's too far a reach. I'm probably like totally psycho, but that's okay. I think I want to say it's yes, it is by a good margin. The longest song on the record at four minutes, 14. Her voice is so good. Yeah. And I almost like this is almost very, is this so like out of this kind of weird album? This is like such a Beatles ass kind of thing right here. Oh, it's that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's my crack by theory. This, I think it's a pretty song. Definitely. Blake, what's your next uh, one you want to hear? So unfortunately, like, after, I don't know, track 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, they, it kind of started to lose me in a way that, like, not where I was, like, actively disliking listening to it, but it wasn't hitting me as hard. So my mm. next song is actually 12, the second to last one. And I, I started to worry like, oh, have I seen the tricks of this album? And then I heard the last two and I was like, oh, no, they still had shit up their sleeves. Mm. Um, so I hate to skip such a large swath of the album, but that was the next one I had written down. Not a problem. Okay. It's your show, big guy. <laughs> sure. Right. This is, <laughs> this is track 12, Adam and Eve Connection. I wrote that, I, I don't know, we, I guess we can jump to it if you want, but I wrote cut at 101 is the best part of the album. All right, I'll let it set the scene and then jump. Maybe that was a bad idea. I do wonder, like, if the album was one or two songs shorter, if I wouldn't have felt like, I kind of like was getting, I don't know, kind of like what Matt said about Three Cheers. Like I was getting a little exhausted by the unpredictableness of the record Mm. that it took it a second to catch me again. And I think hearing this song start with that same bass riff from track seven and then just go into this absolute mess of sound like it was impossible to ignore and completely had my attention again. Mm hmm. Well, we're coming up on your cut anyway, so. Mm-hmm. 
there's nothing like particularly overly complex to play on this record but it's also not like a super simple record Mm -hmm. and this part just kind of like lingering throughout the rest of the song and being very simple and stripped down Mm -hmm. i think is like really effective for how manic the beginning of it is Yeah, when I was listening to this album, this was the first time I ever listened to this record as well. And when I was listening to it, I was struck by just like, like I usually listen when I'm walking or not right in front of like the track list. So I don't really assign when tracks are ending and starting, just sort of noticing sound. And the more and more I listened to it, the more and more I was like, oh, I remember this part of the 40 minute record or whatever, you know, rather than like, I remember this track because this sound follows this sound. Um, like you said, it's a little hard to anticipate at times. Keeps it fresh, keeps mm-hmm. it fun, but it does lead to like, I don't know if I could play back or tell you what comes next in any given track. It's sure. it's a little bit exciting. I um, uh, I think it's worth like shouting out for how sporadic this album can be, how good they are at writing hooks, because yeah. it's like mm. there would be very specific, and you know, like yesterday was the first time I'd ever heard this album. Or, like, listen to it in full, and, like, all hours after I was done listening to it, parts would be stuck in my head of a song I'd only heard one time in my yeah. entire life. And I was like, wow, you know, for an album that all over the place to just, like, be stick with me, like, those dudes have some serious songwriting chops. Yeah. Um, I wanted to hear one that's a favorite of mine that I think is just is super catchy and kind of, maybe not the most totally conventional, but I think Lamore stories has got a really good chorus and i just i like i don't know i just like the riffs on this one a lot sure here it comes like the chorus here i think it's just so fun like it's a band i want to spend a lot more time with like listening to mm-hmm. this album more and exploring their discography like i find yeah, them man. very interesting <laughs> just these weird little like clashing chords but they somehow make sense the vocalist uh was it mitsuzaki did you say yeah um she is also the bassist, right? Mm. Yeah, I believe yeah. so. Yeah, really good bassist. Yeah, that means a lot to me. I think that, that she, these songs are very rhythmic, rhythmically say, strange. They might be one of those bands where every once in a while they switch instruments too. I think she might have played like guitar oh. and like handed the bass over to like Ed Rodriguez. Nice. But I'm not a hundred percent. Where did you say you saw these people? Big V's Saloon in St. Paul. It's like this total dive. <laughs> <laughs> That's now, it's gone now. I can't remember what it is, but. Oh, I was going to say, because I don't think I'd ever been there. Yeah, it was kind of fading out towards the end. It was, you know, it was pretty, mm. it was pretty grimy. But I mean, they've also <laughs> played like the Guthrie too, so I didn't go to that Wait, show. Wait, Deerhoof played the Guthrie? Mm-hmm. Wow. That 
That's a different context. <laughs> yeah, Ed Rodriguez from this band used to be in a band in Minneapolis called Sick Bay, like S I C B A or Sick hmm. Bay, um, one word. And um, they were great. So like my friend Nick, I think went to see him at there because he got on the guest list because he used to be in a band with Ed. But Sick Bay, nice. a, a great band. The band I keep coming back to while listening to them is Maximum the Hormone. I like can't get them out of my head listening to this, despite yeah. them being so different in some ways. It's like I'm sure there's like the singer and Maximum the Hormone, like there's the Japanese connection there. But like uh. they are both bands that expertly take two genres, specifically something harsh and something poppy, and bring them together in such fantastic ways. Yeah. No, they then they do like really abrupt changes that are like yeah. just jarring but somehow work. Um, the final one that I just want to hear just because like this, I don't know if it's supposed to be an audio joke, but like to me, it was always like the joke of like the one kid in um, like elementary band that sucks and can't play anything. So they put him on triangle and he only gets like his one moment. To My shine. name is Jason. <laughs> Come on, Jason. You were probably you were your first chair material, Jason. Your, fr- oh, your first you, chair. You. French <clears throat> horn. Um, no, but. You know what I mean? Like that was always a classic joke where the kid has his one big moment where he does like one triangle hit. And I don't know if Flowers <laughs> trying to evoke that, but it, it cracks me up every time because I, I just think of that kind of classic like sitcom thing. It's uh it's under two minutes, so if it's okay, I'll just play yeah. that track. Yeah. The beat almost makes sense, but not quite. I love that guitar tone so much. <laughs> just like, ding. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just imagine this one kid that he's just like sweating that one thing. <laughs> and it, yeah, the other thing with I love about bands like this is I just can't, you know, I can't get my head around how they arrived at this song. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, well, whereas, That's why it, like, they remind me of when you're jamming with a band. And mm-hmm. you're playing a bunch mm-hmm. of parts that don't make sense, and then finally you stumble onto one genius part. Like, this band always feels like they're stumbling on the next part, and it's always working out for them. But yeah, no, these guys have a lot of great albums, so I'd, I'd encourage you. And they're, they're definitely not a one, you know, they, they have a certain style and, you know, aesthetic, but they, they definitely explore different different things with their as their career goes on i think they just released a covers album which i'm really interested to hear i uh i was reading about them last night and i I don't know if it's surprising but i read that like that apparently foo fighters have cited deer hoof as a big influence oh really yeah which i thought was cool this like weird <laughs> this weird artsy band influencing you know one of the biggest rock bands in history i thought yeah. was pretty interesting that's weird though about i mean that's you know girl generally seems like a nice dude to me and um but he is interesting that you know he he's one of the few like big arena rock stars that kind of came out from like underground music and punk and stuff so some sometimes yeah. he references stuff like you know because he was in like the scream from dc before nirvana and like you know, he definitely knows a lot of bands that I, I think a normal guy of like his stature in terms of popularity would not 
be aware of, mm. which is kind of interesting. Um, so yeah, that was Deer Hoof. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. It was one of those. It's like it's hard to know how people because I definitely have friends that like I even respect their you know, music, as you said, Blake, where they're like, eh, I don't know, man, it's not yeah. for me. And they're also one of those bands where, like you said, I can I love them, but if somebody wasn't into them, I'd be like, yeah, I mean, they're not for everybody. Yeah. Um, but I, I think they're kind of a special band in, in certain ways. So it was it was a fun discussion. It was fun for me to finally like learn about my chemical romance and like, you know, just kind of embrace that whole thing. So you know, it was, it was a really, it was a fun episode. Are we going to do some questions, Jason? We sure are. If you and Blake are ready. Yeah, I think we are. All right. Let's hit it. All right. Our first question. Uh, well, actually I want to call out something that, um, uh, King Prometheus in the discord did a really cool thing with a Spotify playlist where they put together one, uh, album for each year they've been alive and called it year by year. I think that's cool. Uh, that is a really cool idea. And I was like, I kind of want to try that for myself, but I'm like nineties music. Isn't really my forte. Maybe I can tap you that for that one, Matt. Sure. But uh, I just wanted to call that out. Cause like a lot of cool stuff going on in the discord, uh, these days in particular, when people are just sitting at their computers and at home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but our, our first actual question comes from Jeff Entrite, uh, AKA Groffles who says, hello, hello, CrossFit faders. Sorry. Auto carrot seems to have been a problem and I rolled with it. Uh, when you are exposed to new music and find that particularly emotionally or intellectually stimulating song or album, uh, are you like me and you repeat it until your ears bleed? I'm asking for a friend. So uh, I guess the question is, when you find new music that connects with you, do you beat it to death or do you give it some room to breathe? I personally kind of, I think more and more give it room to breathe. Every once in a while I get really obsessed with a particular song. But I, again, like, I mean, I've talked about this too, is like... I, I definitely think, you know, technology shapes the way we behave, I think, you know, more than we probably even want to admit to ourselves. And I know that, you know, streaming has definitely probably changed my attention span in certain ways, you know, in terms of like when I, you know, and part of it, you're just not invested in it, you know, money wise. Like, you know, when you bought a CD and you were a kid, you know, you were, that was like $18 or $16 and you were like, well, I'm going to listen to this shit. Whereas now it's just sometimes I flit around like, oh, what about that? What about that? So, um, mm -hmm. you know, every once in a while I get stuck on something, but I tend to probably listen to variety of stuff, you know, with the exception of like this show, which I kind of like that it actually sort of like forces me to dig into certain albums. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing, but it's probably the reality. Blake, what are your habits? I beat the song to death. I did it today. <laughs> I was think I was just really? thinking about it today. Um, I was, li I really like this song. Um, by this hardcore band Tsunami called YAB, uh, the letters YAB. And like on, on one of my smoke breaks during work, I listened to the song three times in a row, just restarting it. It's like a Jesus. Long song. <laughs> so yeah, I do that all the time with songs. Um, I've been doing that a lot with this band called Cosmo Pike. They have a song called uh, Chronic Sunshine. And I probably listen to it like 20 times a day. That's awesome. Yeah. Holy hell. Yeah. What does that uh what does that do for your like long-term appreciation of the song? Do you come back to it a year later and you're like, "Man, I listened to this too much. I can't enjoy it now." Or do you does well, it stay fresh? No, cuz I I'll I'll listen to like a song really heavily for like a week and then it's dead to me and I forget about it. And then inevitably cuz like all my music listening habits have shifted basically just to Spotify. Inevitably they'll show back up in my like year in review mm. or they have playlists where you can go back and find out your most listened to songs like from four or five years ago. And I'll rediscover yeah. them that way. And it'll be like finding an old friend. So I always get stoked about it. So 
Yeah. Yeah. I Short mean, distance sprinting, baby. Honestly, yeah. one of the biggest things I, I, I mean, I, you know, I have a really nice record player and it sounds great, but part of the thing I like about vinyl is just like, I tend to leave a record on my, my turntable and just not change it. You know what I mean? Cause I'm just sort of like mm-hmm. lazy. So I actually, that's one of the things I like about vinyls. I tend to like engage with stuff maybe more for like a period of time, just mm-hmm. <laughs> probably out of sheer laziness of like not wanting to like change the record or whatever. Um, so this is the perfect, I think this is the reason you have a podcast like this, Matt, is because I don't know that I know anybody else who would consider that an element of their listening habits is like, I didn't really want to change the record and like, I can't just <laughs> click away from it when it's on vinyl. <laughs> so I love that. It's good though. Uh, Jeremy Dubose says, Hey, Crossfaders, this question is for my hip hop heads. I hope there's at least one on the podcast. Um, who would you consider to be an underrated rapper for Jeremy says, uh, big L showbiz and AG come to mind. They had short careers, yet their lyrics and style are so unique that he feels they don't get enough credit. You know what? I would just like to say AG Andre, the giant from, um, uh, from showbiz and AG has actually done some really good solo albums. A few years ago, he did one called everything's Barry. Um, that was really good. So just, he's still out there. He's there still, he's still doing stuff. Ooh. Um, Jimmy Pot from Bloodhound Gang. I feel like people don't talk about him enough. Uh, I think that's they... actually kind of a real answer, but my actual <laughs> answer. <laughs> I think they talk about him enough. <laughs> Jimmy Pop is he's he's pretty. Anyway, uh, my real answer, even though I think he's pretty big, I feel like I don't hear a lot of. I don't. I feel like I don't hear Denzel Curry brought up as much as I hmm. wish I did, despite him being a pretty popular dude. Um, I don't know. Too yeah, many, no, like, he's super underground people, but he's like. Him or Vince Staples that are like kind of on the periphery of the biggest rappers right now. The, those guys are both. Yeah, I know what you mean. They're popular, but they're not like Drake or you yeah. know, that. Yeah, they're. But those guys are both excellent. Actually, both excellent rappers. Oh man, yeah. I have a ton. So, um, going back in the day, I want to. I think a band that's kind of got unfairly forgotten. A group is EPMD. They were an amazing group, and I think very influential in hip hop production. Um, I think Redman people kind of see as like sort of a character. Like, cause he, oh, he, did, man. he did like the funny red, red man. He was, he was in true crime, New York city, wasn't he? Yeah. He's kind of, <laughs> yeah. so Ooh, he's kind of like Snoop Dogg and that I think he's kind of known as sort of this like goofy character, but his first two albums are like legit, like masterpieces. Um, what the album and there is a dark side, there is a dark side. Um, a bunch of guys I want to shout out, uh, Ka, K-A. Um, he has an album out this year called Descendants of Cain. It's like he is like pushing this really weird gothic, almost like I don't know. You sort of have to hear him. Um, he's amazing. Rock Marciano, I think, is probably the most influential underground guy from the last ten years. Um, he has a new album called Mount Marcy out. Um, sorry, this is like Jason. This inside really joke. It's like, me and, this this like me and Logan hanging out. Um, <laughs> your old Droog, um, these guys, a bunch of guys that have gotten a lot of attention this year. So they're not maybe as underground as they were, but the whole Griselda records, Benny, the butcher Conway, West side gun, Boldy James. Uh, I want to shout out Koreatown oddity. Little Dominic's nosebleed is an album that came out this year. That's absolutely a phenomenal album. Um, and from the old days, there's a guy named the DOC. He actually wrote tons of stuff, um, on the early NWA albums and a lot of stuff on the easy E records. And then he had a, he had one album called No One Can Do It Better, produced all by Dr. Dre. It's an amazing record. Then unfortunately, he was um, in a bad car accident, and um, it shattered and like just shredded his larynx. Um, I think Ooh. in like the you know windshield or something. 
So basically, unfortunately, he never really got his voice back. And you can hear him a little bit on The Chronic by Dre, because Dre always kind of kept him around, I think, to write lyrics for other people and kind of just as like a homie kind of thing. But, um, you know, he tried to do a solo album, but it was just like his voice was just like, ah, ah, kind of thing. So he's mm-hmm. kind of a, a small tragedy, but, you know, those are all guys I would say is underrated. So anyway. I have, uh, I have actually two more. Um, Please. Rat King out of New York. They, they're they're cool. just like, do it. They're cool. Oh yeah, they. Um, it's. I think they only have two records. Uh, so it goes and Wiki ninety three. They're both worth listening. Like they are just dirty throwback New York rap. Um, they also have King Cruel on a song on So It Goes, which is definitely right, worth right. checking out. Um, and then from Rat King, Wiki, who was one of the main rappers of Rat King, his solo stuff, specifically his first, uh, his like debut album, No Map. No Mountains in Manhattan is super, super good. And Rat King broke up and Wiki, I think, went through some shit. So he disappeared right as he was gaining a lot of hype. And he's trying to come back and it's not working out, um, which is unfortunate because I think he could have been a really big deal. Um, but now just like he's kind of fallen off. So I guess he's uh, a product of, you know, circumstance. He's unfortunately underrated because of that. Hmm. Oh, you know, Jason, sorry. I have one more. The band Armand Hammer. and then. Those guys, as solo as Elucid and Billy Woods, um, those guys are all really good. Actually, if you like some of the Rat King stuff, you'd probably dig them or, or like Clipping or Flatbush Zombies kind of stuff. So anyway, a lot of rappers, a lot of good rappers out there. Also, check out uh, rap music. Check it out. Also, every message. rapper on the back half of Hit 'Em Up by Tupac, The Outlaws. Oh yeah, The Outlaws. So, so good. <laughs> Accident murderer. Never heard of you. Wait, did I start playing Spotify again by accident? Did anybody else just hear nope. that? No. It, it was a joke. Oh, that sorry. Was uh, <laughs> have you, like, ah, see, there's a part... See, I try these funny things sometimes. <laughs> that, the, 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 I don't mean to harp on Hit Em Up by Tupac. A great song, but oh. a, kind of a tough listen in 2020. But have, do you remember the part in that song where he makes fun of some poor guy for having sickle cell anemia? Yeah. Ooh, yeah, that's, 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 the... uh, that's uh, a, a prodigy from Mob Deep. Okay, that's, that's like the hardest diss burn. I've ever heard in a rap song. Yeah, well, so that the thing is, is though Tupac got shot in New York, and he blamed he he thought it was the Mob Deep crew that shot had him shot. Oh, so there's okay. a lot there's a lot going on. But yeah, no, that was yeah. Hit him up is just like, and then the Biggie diss is like, boy, about his wife. It's like yeah, it's that's that's like when when Beef was like Beef, like that was, re that was yeah, that's a great song. But not, yeah. probably morally indefensible, but still <laughs> exactly somewhat yeah. thrilling. You can't make fun of someone for having sickle cell anemia. Little mean, a little bit mean. Uh, Sincerely, Eric says, with regards to the Three Cheers album, I just want to say that I've always thought it was sweet that Gerard basically sp- excuse me speaks, speaks of the song "You Know What They Do to Guys Like Us in Prison" uh, like a love letter to Burt McCracken, lead singer of The Used. We mentioned him earlier, yeah. and their friendship on tour together. At this point in my life, COVID aside, I don't think I would want to be on tour and gone from home all the days of the year. But there was once a time when that felt like a dream of mine. Uh, so the question is, what are y'all's thoughts on tour life? Um, if it would be as glamorous as sometimes portrayed or or if you'd rather stay away from it. And, you know, if you've played series of shows, maybe stories from that time. I know you've been in a, ba- in a band that, that played around, Matt. Okay. Here's being in a band, an indie band, and playing out of town. It's Unbelievable Jolly Machine. Me, Stacy, Andy McNamara of Game Informer uh, Editor-in-Chief fame. Drive down to the city of Winona. 
some dudes we know that put out a 45 of ours, set it up, and we're going to play at this bar. Show up. The bar has lost its liquor license. It is now rebranded to be a quote-unquote pool hall with two pool tables because it's a bar. (laughs) And so there's literally like perhaps 15 like semi-board skateboarders there. (laughs) They don't have a stage. So it's like, it's an old, like, it's kind of an old downtown with like those brick buildings where they have like a sort of like a little weird platform by the front plate glass window. So like Mm -hmm. we can barely fit like a drum set on there, like barely, but we're all sort of like in a line, right? Like with about four feet to like work with. So me and my friend Ben, uh, who's in a band called Voodoo Lovin' at that time. Now he's in a band called Polisa that actually does pretty well. We were like constantly like running around the corner to a real bar that had drinks and like slamming drinks and then running back to our <laughs> own show because we couldn't drink there. Um, the dude from the label was like going down to the basement. I don't know what they were doing down there, but they were going down a lot, if you know what I mean. Um, and uh, <laughs> I don't think I know what you mean, Matt. So, well, uh, <laughs> you know, show goes on is uh, Voodoo Love at Us and this band called Supermodel. Supermodel just like was a great band, but they just cleared every room. They were so obnoxious, like so noisy. Um, so by the end, there's really nobody there. We don't get paid because like these kids didn't pay. It was an all ages pool hall. And we drive them back from Winona in the fucking downpour. About an hour out of town, we start to hear like this horrible scraping noise. Our, our muffler and a big chunk of like the exhaust pipes of our van, like <laughs> fucking fall off the van. And we have to pull over and like throw the shit in the back of the van and then limp home with like, I don't know what kind of smoke we're like puking out into the environment at that point. Yeah. Get home like Minneapolis, probably three 30 in the morning, four in the morning and, you know, load the shit up a flight of stairs and like, you know, go home. Repeat, repeat, repeat. (laughs) So there you go. Blake. Road stories. Yeah, man. If any. I've played some truly gnarly shows. Um, <laughs> the one that came to mind, though, um, the band I was in before Ari that we talked about at the beginning of the mm-hmm. show, um, I was the vocalist of that band. And, like, we toured so briefly. I think, like, uh, in the entire duration of the band, we did, like, two months total. Um, and the first one we did was a three and a half weeks like the month after I graduated high school, I cannot believe my parents let me fucking do this. Uh, but we played a venue in Florida that wasn't open yet, which is absolutely absurd. I don't know how this okay. happened. We played the venue like three days before the venue's grand <laughs> opening. It was a brand it's new venue. Isn't it? And they were like, yeah, our grand opening Saturday. And I'm like, cool, dude, it's Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. So. Us and the two bands we were on tour with, shout out to your favorite hero from Knoxville and a hub ABF from Louisville. Um, the band we played with was some like weird, like, I don't know, crust punk band. <laughs> and they were the only people there that yeah. weren't the bands we were on tour with. So I call it a venue. It was a room. It was smaller than my office. Um, it was a very small room. The guy who booked the tour, the tour promoter, like, fucked us over. Um, oh, no. Real bad. And we were at the point, like, we were at deep in Florida, weeks in this thing, losing money left and right. Not that, like, touring is profitable. So we were just angry, and we were young, and I don't... I wish we wouldn't have tore this venue apart, but it happened. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, we were just, like, 
throwing cinder blocks across this venue while we were playing. <laughs> and uh, the crust punk band were hitting people with fold out chairs. Yeah. <laughs> and there was liquor. <laughs> sounds and, like a good Tuesday, man. Yeah. There was liquor and beer everywhere on the floor because like it was just mayhem for like and only like 10 people in the entire world saw it It was like the craziest show that ever (laughs) happened and only 10 people were there um but i'll never forget we were throwing the cinder block we had damn dude this is like some keith moon shit yeah we were like throwing this giant cinder block across this like eight foot by eight foot room or whatever and after we played, the the guy who ran the venue walked in, and I'll never forget his face of just like, what the fuck happened to my room? And we're like, we don't know, are we getting paid? He's like, no! <laughs> and, yeah, so that was probably the, that's the story that always sticks out from my brief stint touring. Uh, we also kicked a hole through a wall Jesus. we were messes like okay i was fresh it out of like high you school. guys are a little bit out of line here blake i'm gonna tell you i know i know <laughs> like, but I'm like they ask you. for stories like I know, i'm I not know. proud I'm just, of it yeah, yeah, but yeah. it does stand <laughs> out like you know you when if you send yeah. an 18 year old on the road that's what that's, that's what's gonna happen you yeah, know? yeah you're, you're, there's a liability you're, you're, honestly, yeah. you're, you're probably lucky you got out of there with just not being paid to be honest <laughs> yeah, well, not being paid for <laughs> playing shows was definitely a reoccurring yeah. theme of my well, yeah. musical career. Yeah, it's it's just too bad, like that you don't have any like interesting or crazy stories from that time. That seems pretty tame, honestly. Yeah, know? yeah, that's the one we all, we still talk about these days, like almost ten <laughs> years later. We're like, remember when we that's did wild. that really awful thing to that venue? It's like, oh yeah, <laughs> that was terrible. Yes, I do. Uh, Doreen Claire, who I hope I pronounced your name correctly, Doreen. Uh, says, thanks for helping me re-listen to Three Cheers for the millionth time. One thing I'm thinking about in particular uh, is how Gerard helped those who wanted to mess with gender roles figure out whether or not they were trans. Uh, Gerard themselves has said in recent years uh, that they've opened up with their gender issues. So the question is, uh, how influential was My Chemical Romance and Three Cheers for your perception of what masculinity does mean or doesn't mean? Uh, or did it just not phase you at the time or even today? You and this is what I thought of when you mentioned earlier, Blake, about yeah. how, you know, the just just speak to that if you can. Yeah. I mean, like, f- to be upfront, like, I am cisgendered and I use he, mm-hmm. him. But, like, I went to Catholic school all my life in the South. And that definitely, like, is a double whammy of very stereotypical expectations of what masculinity is. And, like, my chemical romance showed me that, like, I don't have to be that type of dude. You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't, I don't have, I, like, I can be who I want. And, like, if I want to bend masculinity or find where I fall in masculinity, like, I can do that because it's my fucking body and that's fine. And, like, I think my chemical mm-hmm. romance, like, definitely being gender bending, a droid way, like, specifically, like, was very eye-opening to me and stood out to me while also like being a pretty masculine band again about like guns and violence and gangs you know like these Mm -hmm. like macho things but also like being very inclusive and yeah they that like that meant a lot to me and i'm sure it means a lot more to like other people like that are trans that were able to like you know that my chemical romance kind of like helped them find their own paths in life but even for me like it was like yeah like who fucking cares if i want to grow my hair out and wear tight jeans or whatever like i don't have to exactly. be what a school or a church says 
which is like the mm-hmm. standard punk thing. But like, it was really important to me for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, being of similar demographics, you and I, Blake, uh, I like I. It might surprise Matt to know that I was uh, I was bullied in my time in public school uh, for not being like an incredible. I wasn't interested in sports, wasn't really interested in a whole lot of the things that, you know, the traditionally masculine things uh, to do in high school. And it was like a strong like a reassurance right? that you can that you can be, you know, these sorts that these signifiers are not signifiers of one gender or another, just sort of like personality and and personal identity. Um, Let's see. Tim Laro wants to know, uh, what's your favorite way to discover music? Is it through friends or totally on your own, Matt? I mean, I, I feel like I, I still get a lot of recommendations from friends. Um, and, you know, I go to a few, still go to a few mu- music message boards, one in particular that I, I still find a lot of stuff from. So, yeah, I think that, you know, and I, I, I go to like stuff like Pitchfork and stuff like that and, and read reviews and stuff like that as well or, you know, Consequence of Sound or stereo gum stuff like that so i mean I, I try to keep up and you know and then just twitter too I, I follow a decent amount of music writers and musicians on twitter so yeah i'd say it, it's still probably more recommendations than like you know spotify playlists or whatever hmm. blake uh my favorite way it i'm like that type of dude that if you tell me to listen to a band i'll never do it in my entire life like oh no, man person i like to discover it on my own and usually it's just like just scanning through suggestions under on YouTube. Like I'll pull up a song I like hmm. and then just scroll through the suggestions. And if a thumbnail catches my eye, I'll just click it. And if I like it, I like it. If I don't, I don't. And then I just kind of continue that process for a couple hours. And that's how I usually nice. find new music. You uh, Does it happen to you where you're like, mm, this video has 1.5 million views I'm not going to watch that. Too no, many people like that. No, that no happens way. to me all the time. No, I'm the exact opposite because like, I'm really bad with like keeping, I, I, well, I don't know if this is bad, but like, I don't keep up with pop culture very well. Mm-hmm. Like, like we have a question about the umbrella Academy coming up. I've never seen that. I don't like, I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like, so mm-hmm. if I see something with like 12 million views and I've never heard of it, never heard of the artist or anything, I'm more incentivized to click on it because it's like, how do I miss these things? You know what I'm saying? Like, it feels weird right. to see numbers like that. So I usually seek out the more mainstream suggestions. Yeah. See, that's that's growth. That's change. I just yeah. stick in my little hole of like videos with 50,000 views of some obscure Japanese you know, funk from 1970. <laughs> yeah. Nobody watches, you know, that everybody gets in their recommendations and nobody watches. Yeah. No, um, I'm, I'm always like listening to, uh, or I'll like stumble across something. i be like, man, this is crazy. I bet I'm the first person to hear this. And I look and it's like <laughs> 700 billion views. And I'm like, I, <laughs> I don't know what rock I crawled under, but I got to get out of here. <laughs> this one's called Opa Gangnam style. What, what the hell is that? <laughs> is you, that even English? Have you heard of this guy? Sai? I think he's going to be big. <laughs> Uh, so we've got Kyle Hilliard, a uh, cohort of Min Max, Kyle Hilliard, uh, asking, what do you think is going to be, um, excuse me, more likely to be Gerard Way's legacy? Is it going to be My Chemical Romance or The Umbrella Academy? Um, go ahead. I, so this was, oh, oh my bad. Oh, I was just going to say, like, I'm not well-versed in Umbrella Academy, obviously. I, I've heard it's very good, but sometimes I'm just, I'm kind of hitting a point where sometimes I just don't want any fucking comic book content in my life at all mm-hmm. anymore. Every time I hear about the Zack Snyder cut, I want to die <laughs> and destroy all culture. Um, yeah. 
But I, I guess my my only thing is that I don't. I, to me, you can't engage with My Chemical Romance without really engaging with his whole persona, right? Like he's very mm-hmm. forward. I think that maybe Umbrella Academy just like, I think once stuff kind of hits that Netflix zone, people, a lot of people that watch it just aren't that curious about who makes that shit. Mm. Like, I don't think your average person like gives a shit that John Favreau directed Iron Man. You know what I mean? Like, I think they just sure. go to Iron Man. I think they just like see Umbrella Academy, just watch it. So my only thing is I just don't, I feel like movies and, and, and television, it's a little bit, or streaming, you know, it, it, there's a little bit, there's more distance between the creator and the um, the the work of art, I would say, and, and a lot of layers between the person that's watching it and them. Whereas music, I think you kind of have to like, like you have to, you can't listen to My Chemical Romance as I just did. Like, like Gerard Way's in your face. Like, mm. you're gonna notice who he is, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, I think a lot of people might just see it as like, oh, that was a cool show, you know? Right, right. I it was astonishing to me when the Umbrella Academy aired. You know, I read the graphic novels back when they first released the trade paperbacks and stuff. Um. And it it struck me when the show premiered how, just how little they were mentioning, uh, like Gerard Way's history as frontman of My Chemical Romance. It was like from Gerard Way, from you know writer Gerard Way, from you know adapted from Gerard Way's graphic novel and all that stuff. But there was very little you know like multimedia interplay there. Uh, it might have been like licensing issues or whatever. But I think that sort of feeds to what you're saying, Helgeson, is that there's like people who listen to My Chemical Romance uh, are like into it and they and they see it and he's definitely like the forward element of that uh and then you can watch you know you can sort of do your research and find out that he wrote a comic book find out that's on netflix boom that's it but like generationally too since my chemical romance haven't made any new music in what is it like eight years or something right now since Mm -hmm. their last full record um generationally there might be a whole like crop of kids who are coming of age now watching things on netflix getting interested in comic books and you know whatever music they're interested into that will know what the Umbrella Academy is and just maybe never touch his stuff. So I think that will be borne out in the next, I don't know, 10 years to see yeah. where the music goes versus where the rest of this property goes. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Blake, do you have any thoughts despite not having seen? Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess this question struck me cause I'll, I'm like, I'm, a, I'm aware of the Umbrella Academy. I read the first, the very first mini series. I remember reading oh, nice. that, um, the like five issue run or whatever. Um, and I knew it had a show. I guess I was unaware that it was big enough that this was even a question. <laughs> um, which, yeah. but I guess it makes sense. Like, you know, uh, uh, why, why does a 10 year old today with Netflix, why are they necessarily going to know about three cheers for sweet revenge or even whoever the hell Gerard way is? You know what I'm right, saying? Right. So like, it makes sense now that I think about it, but I guess I was even unaware that the show was like, successful enough to compare with the size of mcr um but yeah i don't know i mean in uh, for people my age it's going to be my cam no question right right i i don't i mean hands down i don't know his um involvement with umbrella academy aside from being the like creator of the ip um mm-hmm. so yeah I, I don't know it's an interesting question but it is like i said next few years keep an eye on it uh and then what i'm going to call our final question is going to be from Ben Hansen himself, who I wanted to end on a on a jolly note. Um, he asks if there's a Christmas song that you never get sick of. Uh, and secondarily, he asks, what are your thoughts on Run DMC's Christmas and Hollis? But I guess the heart of the question is, is there a Christmas song you never get sick of? Well, Christmas and Hollis is a classic. Well, unimpeachable. Amazing. Um, so I'm trying to kind of divide these up. Uh, 
as far as like traditional Christmas carols, I'm a big uh, little uh, little star of Bethlehem guy. I think that's got a really like that one's a good one. Um, now, now hum a few bars so I know which one you're talking about. And in the dark streets, uh, the everlasting light. Oh, oh okay, it's kind of, okay, it's kind okay. Of like a more mournful kind of. I mean, I'm a fuck terrible uh-huh, singer. Uh-huh. So I just found out, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> that one's a, that's a banger. Um, there's a song by Billy Squire called "Christmas Is the Time to Say I Love You" that I really like. And then I just want to um, shout out an album by a guitarist named John Fahey that I'm a big fan of. Uh, it's called The New Possibility, a John Fahey Christmas. And it's sort of like uh, solo guitar arrangements of traditional Christmas carols. It, it's just really powerful album to me. So if I would suggest a Christmas album to anyone, that would be what it was. Blake, do you listen to a whole lot of holiday music? No, I'm going to say this is like the most boring take, but I hate Christmas music. <laughs> I don't like yeah. it. But there are two songs I listen to every Christmas, which is I, w- I Won't Be Home for Christmas by Blink-182. And mm-hmm. I Hope You Have a Shitty Christmas by uh, the singer-songwriter Landon Tours. Those are two of my traditions, <laughs> but I don't. Nice. Yeah, Man. like traditional Christmas music, like I just I just don't like it. It's um, very grinchy. I don't like like seasonal music, really. <laughs> What about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? How about that? Oh, well, actually, you know what? In in uh, fitting with the theme of the episode, I also I do like My Chemical Romance's cover of the Mariah Carey Christmas song. Yeah, man. I was hoping somebody would bring yeah. that up. I do like just, that one. Okay. What is with... Like, I swear to God, in the last thing. two years or three years, that Mariah Carey... It's like the McRib now or something. Like, every <laughs> year, it's just like this whole thing about this Mariah Carey song. It's so weird. <laughs> Yeah, once somebody pointed out that it was a good song, then everybody realized, hey, it's a good song, and it just dominates. I just yeah. feel like it's, it's um, like that stupid, like, Die Hard's a Christmas movie thing that's on Twitter, like, every single year, like, clockwork. It's just, I don't know. Anyway, I'm just bitching. <laughs> now that I'm actually uh, getting into it, I do, I'm so, I'm sorry, I also really like the please? August Burns Red Christmas songs they've done. They're like a metalcore band <laughs> that have done some, like... Uh, I, I feel like Metallica maybe did a similar thing, like metal renditions of Christmas carols. Like August Burns Red has done the metal core version of those, and I think those are pretty cool, actually. Nice. What about you, Jason? I've got a couple decent ones. Um, so one that like jumps to mind. I'm a big Wolfpack fan. Uh, Christmas in L.A. is a classic of theirs. Um, there is a song by the band called "Christmas Must Be Tonight" from uh, Nor- or excuse me, um, Northern Lights, Southern Cross. Yeah, Northern Lights, Southern Cross, uh, which is one of their better albums. Uh, And there's a song called uh, Christmas at 22 by The Wonder Years. It was on like a compilation, I think, of Christmas songs. It's an original. uh, And it's just like very much what it feels like to go home in Christmas, excuse me, at Christmas time when you're like past teenage years and you're sort of disillusioned and just kind of disliking everything around you. Uh, So those are those are my three stalwart choices for for Christmas songs that let's, let's forever retire little drummer boy. That song <laughs> like should never have been written and should never be played again or sung ever again. I, I sang bass in that in choir in college and holy shit. Wonder years is a good pool. I feel like almost all their songs are about Philadelphia in the winter time. So that's a good, it's a good pool. <laughs> it's, it's really their forte. Yeah. You would say, uh, okay. Well, that's the end of our list of questions. Um, uh, the song we'll go out on is uh, Toy Soldier by the Men Zingers. It was uh, also suggested by Sincerely Eric, uh, somebody who suggested one of our one of the questions we answered. Thank you so much, Sincerely Eric. Yeah. Blake, it was great to have you. I'm glad we could yeah. have you back for a full-on episode and just 
go deep. So that was great, man. I appreciate you taking the time to do it. Yeah, thank you all. Absolutely. Awesome. Where can uh, where can people find you, Blake? Oh, um, let's see. I write for Game Informer. Uh, typically for you, what? Th- yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That rag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that rag up in oh. Minneapolis, as we call it. Oh, <laughs> man. You guys. Yeah, I write for them primarily the magazine, so, you know, please go. Well, I, I guess order uh, an issue these days, but usually you can go to GameStop and pick one up or uh, get a subscription. That would be great. Um, and then I'm on Twitter at Metallica is Red. And then I guess because, like, there seems to be a fair amount of crossover between the MinMax podcasts and Game Query. I also host Game Query, so... Go listen to that with uh, AJ Moser and Haley McLean and formerly Leo Vader, though he quit the show, so he's dead to me. But uh, oh. I see a lot of Min Max jumping huh? in there. Rest yeah, in peace. Leo's dead to me Rest ever in peace, since Leo. he left our podcast. <laughs> gone too, oh, man, gone that was soon. hard news to hear. Gone yeah. Too yeah. Soon. But yeah, that's where I am. Uh, thank you all for having me on. I was yeah. on the show all the time, so it was, I was stoked to be on a formal episode. It was a lot of fun, man. Absolutely. Thank you. And if you want to support Min Max and all the great video game content that they create, and also support uh, Crossfade, which is part of that. Go to patreon.com slash minmax, M-I-N-N-M-A-X. And uh, yeah, give it any level. And it's we have a lot of cool community stuff that, you know, we did uh, the last episode is community um, questions. We're going to try to do a lot, a lot more stuff to engage our, our Patreon supporters and, and, and community on Discord. So we thank all those that do support. Yeah.